the free for all roundtable brought to you by lexus avon canada's newest lexus dealer in the maple auto mall near rutherford at highway 400 luxury is closer than you think round one on round one today, Sabrina Nanji is here with Queen's Park Observer. Matt Gurney is an established journalist and co-founder of The Line, which you can find online. Media and crisis communications leader Anne-Marie Aikens is here. Happy Monday, everybody. And let's start with the latest poll, which suggests that uh, Olivia Chow, and it confirms that she's in the lead, but she's consolidating her lead. She appears unstoppable. Uh, Sabrina, let me start with you. I'm not asking anybody to justify anything. I just, it's a bit of a mystery to me why she's such a standout when it comes to polling and appears to be romping to the mayor's chair. Yeah, I, I think when we first started talking about this, um, we were talking about name rec- recognition. But I, I think, you know, we're clearly past this point. We've, we've had a couple of debates. We've seen, you know, the at least the front runners uh, compete and, you know, lay out s- some more details on their policies. But I do think it's not over yet. I mean, th- there's still plenty of time, you know, three weeks of the, as a lifetime in politics. Um, and I think there's still room for, for the rest of the, you know, front runners, if I can even call them that, to make up the gap here. Um, there's still a big, pretty big chunk of undecideds around 18 percent i believe um was the latest numbers and and people are paying more attention as we get closer to june 26 um i I don't know how long that will last uh because of course the closer we get to summer vacation people tend to tune out of these things but like i said three weeks is a very long time and i think the polls can also have a tendency to like galvanize chow's opponents here i mean if you're not a fan of her and you're reading these numbers you might be more likely to actually get out and go to the polls bring your family your friends and your neighbors with you. So I, I, I think this is a, you know, a very impressive lead that's going to be hard to beat, but there's still time to, to change things. Okay, well, the hard numbers are 38% of decided voters say they're going to vote for Olivia Chow. Second place, Mark Saunders with 13%. Councillor Josh Matlow, 12%. Uh, Anthony Fury, 10%. Uh, Mitzi Hunter is at 7%. Anna Bailau, 8%. Brad Bradford at 5 um, Anne-Marie Aikens, let me come to you. I guess in some quarters, it's a bit like some people can never wrap their head around the fact that Justin Trudeau has been elected prime minister three times, and so they can't quite figure out what the appeal of Olivia Chow is either. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I still think she's riding on name and recognition. She's kept a really quite low profile other than during the debates, which are kind of all the same. So I'm still in an undecided camp, and I'm really eager to hear what she stands for, what what are what is she planning, and uh, her kind of vague uh, "I need to get into the books and and look before I tell you" is is a bit is a nerve wracking for me. So I'm still undecided. I, I really need to hear more about her policies. Matt Gurney, I guess for some people there's a degree of nostalgia both for Olivia Chow and Jack Layton themselves, but also for uh, sort of an NDP vision of Toronto. Yeah, no, I think probably that's true for some people. Um, What I would say, though, and this is based just on my own conversations, even with my politically engaged and active friends, with the exception of weirdos like us on the panel today who actually think about this stuff for a living, I think public interest in this campaign is is probably technically higher than literally zero, but only within margins of error. Like, I have never seen an election campaign where people have been 
even more disengaged with the possible exception, and Sabrina and I have talked about this before, of the last provincial campaign, where there's just not a lot of people out there who want to talk about this. I, in my, like, personal life, I try not to talk about politics. Like, I'm like, I'm like that, uh, the character from Seinfeld who's a masseuse and doesn't want to spend all her off time giving massages. I don't want to spend all my off time talking about the same stuff I'm talking about at work. But sometimes people, you know, it's, it's easy small talk to make with the political writer, right? You talk about politics. No one wants to talk about this. To the extent anyone does talk about this, it's just a sense of, like, despair. And it's like, oh, yeah, man, I don't know who I'm voting for yet. I haven't even thought about it yet. I mean, the, the only commonly repeated refrain I've actually heard throughout this election campaign is people wish that Tory hadn't resigned in the first place. Yeah, yeah. No, and people who kept thinking right up until the very last minute that John Tory might romp into City Hall and sign up and run again, but he promised he wouldn't do that, and he didn't. So, listen, I think it um, informs this next discussion, and needs to be disclosed anyway. Anne-Marie Aikens, you used to be the spokesperson for Metrolinx. You're no longer with Metrolinx, but um, that may govern some of the things that you can say on this file. Brian Lilly, who will appear this morning with Jerry Agar at 10.05, writes a column today where he talks about about how hard it has been for him to get his hands on documents at Metrolinks to explain why the crosstown, the Eglinton crosstown, is so behind schedule. Anne-Marie Aikens, he says he asked Metrolinks for documents and was told it was going to cost $8,655 to look for the records. Does that make sense to you? Well, I, you know, I, you know, I was, as you said, I was just the spokesperson there and it, uh, some people still think I am. So it's important. I distinguish myself that I can't speak about Metrolinx, but what I can say, cause I was a public servant at, uh, at, uh, two other, uh, pu- public agencies before that. So maybe about 15 years. And so handling FOIs was a regular part of your duty. And there are you know, deadlines that you have to follow. And Matt will know this, that, you know, that uh, agencies often ask for extensions because sometimes they're really broad. But I will tell you that the best way to handle them uh, to avoid a crisis is to be as transparent as possible, to be non-obstructive. You know, often when I was a public servant, we waived fees for reporters because it was in everyone's best interest to get information out there so you didn't uh, look like you were hiding things because that's all at the end of the day. If you don't give the documents, you don't do them in a timely fashion, um, or you put up barriers, it does look like you're hiding something, and that doesn't serve anybody's interest. Well, Matt Gurney, certainly seems that uh, Metrolinx has gone dark like a Russian nuclear submarine. I mean, we're not hearing anything, and yet I'm getting rumbles, and so are other people, that something went desperately wrong, and they're just not, they're, they don't want to admit it. Yeah, no, I've heard the same rumbles. Um, and I think, you know, probably myself, Sabrina, others, uh, maybe even Emma, <laughs> would have a pretty good sense of what did go badly wrong. But we're all being polite and we're not necessarily talking about it. But look, I mean, I'm not expecting the Crosstown open before next year at the very earliest. At the very earliest. You know, I remember when we moved into our current neighborhood, which will be serviced by the Crosstown, I remember thinking, wow, it's incredible. By the time this thing opens, my my daughter, my oldest child, she'll be eight. Honestly, at this point, if she's a teenager, by the time <laughs> this thing opens, I'm going to be not that surprised. So we're way, way off target. Can I just make the broader point, though, that the Crosstown situation, the Metrolinx situation, 
I think he's capturing public interest because it's a multi-billion dollar empty concrete tube running through the middle of the most populated city in the country. What it's showing us about the actual difficulty in getting really basic information out of Canadian governments is not unusual here. The average member of the public is never going to have to just do what we've often had to do, which is try to get a government official to confirm information to us, which is one of the most just idealism vaporizing experiences experiences you could possibly ever put yourself through. Uh, Sabrina, it's not just Metrolinx that seems to be stonewalling here. The Ford administration is also saying it needs more time. Documents have not been forthcoming. What are you hearing? Yeah, I mean, I think this is all very ironic that we're getting, you know, delayed responses on a very delayed project. Um, but it's just kind of par for the course when it comes to our freedom of information system. I mean, it's it's totally busted right now. Any journalist would tell you that. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, it would do well for at least an optics perspective for the government and Metrolinks to be a bit more forthcoming here. I mean, they've kind of made these broad stroke uh, blame blaming uh, to, on this uh, private consortium that's sort of in charge of the crosstown rollout here and i understand they're staring down a potential lawsuit and governments tend to uh you know cite that before the courts i I can't talk about this excuse which is you know in my opinion as a journalist a little bs but uh this is a fund publicly funded project and the public deserves answers um and we're just getting you know finger pointing happening on all sides here so i think you know something needs to give and there needs to be some response to this uh good good luck to brian Lilly, and i would say welcome to the club and as mentioned brian Lilly is going to appear with jerry agar at 10:05 this morning we learned just a little earlier in this hour that the families of paul bernardo's victims at least two of them uh only found out after the fact when corrections canada notified them that paul bernardo had been transferred from maximum security to medium level security he is now in Quebec. Matt Gurney, I'd love to know what the procedure for this sort of thing is, because I never thought he was ever going to see anything outside of a maximum security facility. Yeah, I and I don't even know enough about this to know whether or not I should be outraged. Yeah. Like when I was talking to some of my uh, correctional sources over the weekend, one of the reasons that was possibly suggested, and then to our previous discussion a moment ago, and now I guess we get to bang our heads against Canadian corrections bureaucracy to try and get some details. But one of the possible explanations is Bernardo's own security. There are limited numbers of spaces in the correctional system where people can be held in truly secure custody and for whatever reason it may have made sense for him to shift to this one just because it's a medium security prison i was told doesn't mean that bernardo himself is not kept in a secure area under particularly intense lock and key but again this is canada right even the victims of the family only find out after the fact and the rest of us will probably find out sometime after the sun explodes yeah and marie akins you know on this file I, i understand why some people end up getting parole i understand why some people have shorter sentences but paul bernardo is in a class by himself and i don't understand why he would be sent to a different facility with lesser security yeah i will try and be succinct because i will in the interest of transparency again that word keeps coming up um i have my own history of i was raped by a man that was declared a dangerous offender because he raped a whole bunch of women and uh, he eventually died a an early death in prison um of cancer or something but so i have lots of feelings about it but i that launched me into the the rape crisis movement and i spent a lot of time there and 
we marched, we had task force, we had everything. And, you know, we, it ended up, we have this Canadian bill of rights for victims and that it, um, uh, a review of it came out uh, in uh, 2020 during the pandemic, which was basically said it's toothless, does nothing to protect victims' rights. And this was a, you know, again, with it not being transparent, they t- tell the uh, victims after the fact, she's always already moved, it's de facto, and then won't tell them why or what are the conditions or anything about it. And all of that silence, again, breeded uh, a sense of victimization again, which uh, is just so wrong and could have been avoided. I, and I, you know, I just don't, I think they were trying to avoid a public perception of, um, oh, they were being light on this uh, a criminal then. But um, uh, dangerous offenders, by the way, can get out of prison, that it is not a forever sentence if they meet the conditions. And he applies for parole uh, because now he's eligible for it. Um, um, every other year, I think he gets to apply. Your last thoughts on this one, Sabrina. We're up against the news. Yeah, I, I had a really visceral response to Anne-Marie's story right now, and I had the same reaction to, to reading this and for the families of the victims here. Um, I think at the end of the day, you know, the, the answers are, are the key here to, to make this kind of move and just not tell us why. Um, you know, that there are also rights for victims, too, and I think we need to think about them as well. Thank you all. Good to have you this morning. That is free for all round one. And uh, for one of our panelists, very, very personal. I'd forgotten that aspect of uh, Anne-Marie Aiken's background. Catch the round table. Round one at 745. Round two at 845. Weekday mornings on more in the morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.